Welcome everybody to episode 16 of Fretz's Fave 5. I am Mr. Fretz from the Game Changer podcast right here on Wrestle Addict Radio. This podcast can be found on our Patreon feed as well as my personal podcasting page at anchor.fm slash fretzelmania. That's F-R-E-T-Z-L-E mania. And please leave me a voicemail or a suggestion in there for a future topic. So today on the Fave 5, since we just had NXT TakeOver in your house, I decided to go back in the Wayback Machine and discuss my top 5 favorite WWF in your house events. And no, NXT TakeOver is not going to be on this list. Uh, That would just be recency bias, although that was a damn good event, a great way to spend a Sunday night, and it was about the length of an original in your house. If you want to know my thoughts about that, well, listen to this week's episode of the Game Changer Podcast with good brother co-host and good friend Nate the and Great to find out my thoughts. In 1995, the WWF debuted in your house in uh, may i think it's almost been 25 years now yeah 25 years ago this month it's june oh that'd be the 95 king of the ring oh no yikes so mcmahon i think he wanted to put on more pay-per-view events however these in your house pay-per-views at the time were a little bit cheaper than a big four than say than say king of the ring SummerSlam, wrestlemania survivor series and the royal rumble and this could have been kind of a of an in-between a bit of a buffer between the major four pay-per-views in terms of storyline or feud building or what have you so the first in your house in may 1995 it wasn't that good. I mean, we had a squash match between Mabel and Adam Bomb in one of Brian Clark's last appearances in the WWF. I think his last appearance might have been as a lumberjack at In Your House 2 in July with the main event lumberjack match between Diesel and Psycho Sid for the world title. Yikes. Uh, however, In Your House 1 featured an underrated match between Bret Hart and Hakushi. Uh, I believe he is uh, Japanese worker Jinsei Sasaki. I'm probably way off. Uh, if I am wrong on this, I think some of my New Japan experts will correct me on this. So, uh, Zach, Dusty Dave, um, I'm relying on you for this. I know Hakushi was a major factor in Japan. Uh, he was a fantastic worker, had an amazing match with 123Kid at SummerSlam, which you should absolutely seek out. You should seek out the match with Hakushi. It's on Bret Hart's DVD. It's on like the best of In Your House, I think, as well. Uh, Jerry Lawler defeated Bret Hart in another match later in the show, which would set up their uh, Kiss My Foot match at King of the Ring, uh, it, which was just, it was for comedy uh, what else in your house one? Well, we saw the debut of Savio Vega, the former Quang. 
uh, to come to the aid of Razor Ramon. So the first scene in your house, it wasn't that good. But then eventually over time, I think the pay-per-views might have been taken a little bit more seriously rather than treated as a buffer or a glorified superstars taping, which the rest of 95 had some major duds in ways of not only in your house, but pay-per-views in general. Like King of the Ring 95 is probably one of the worst events the WWF ever put out. Uh, and SummerSlam had some good one, had some good matches. So Survivor Series 95 was underrated. I'll give it that. But uh, number five on my list as I waffle on here was in 1996. Now this match, gosh, this pay-per-view isn't really popular, but it's more infamous. And while a lot of people would have picked In Your House, Good Friends, Better Enemies from April 96, my number five is In Your House 8, Beware of Dog, which took place... On May 26, 1996, from the Florence Civic Center in Florence, South Carolina. And to date, this is the only WWE event to ever take place in South Carolina. Now, I find this absolutely fascinating because, you know, North Carolina, well, isn't that the, well, that's the home state of the of the Flair family. This is Flair country. You know, I don't know. The difference in cultures between North and South Carolina. I am just a small town um, Ontario Canadian man, so I have no idea. But this pay-per-view was infamous because on the Sunday night of the pay-per-view, a severe thunderstorm took out power in the arena and made almost the entire pay-per-view dark, uh, giving a new meaning to the term Dark match. Ha, ha, ha. Funny, funny frets. And the power didn't come back on, I think, until the main event. But then they retaped some of the matches on May 28th, two days later, which became, well, it became a Superstars taping. So I guess the fans kind of got their money back in a way. I don't know if... Any refunds were, ex were um, exchanged here. But there were two matches televised from this event. And, which is kind of funny. If you watch this on the WWE Network, there was no mention of the blackout. However, if you watch the, the live event, and I think the Coliseum video for this, which I think I had... <laughs> uh, there is mention of it, and they're like, "Oh yeah, here's the other of the, here's the other matches." So the results we have here are the Smoking Guns with Billy and Bart defeating the Godwins to win the tag team championship, thanks to Sunny turning her back on the Godwins. Uh, I think she flashed her skirt at Vinius and showed uh, showed off her butt, which is probably in a thong or or in revealing underwear. The uh, storyline here being that Phineas was infatuated with Sonny, and despite the fact that she turned her back on them, she was still obsessed and in love with Sonny. And that actually finally paid off a little bit later on in the year when Sonny would get slopped. And there was a lot of rumor and innuendo uh, from back in the day that uh, someone left the slop bucket 
in the middle of the locker room and said, hey, uh, Sonny's getting slopped tonight, so I'm going to look over here while people put and did unspeakable things in the bucket. Allegedly, I, I can't speak to any truth to that because, well, uh, I was 12 years old and a fan at this point in time, so I, I was obviously not in the locker room. Uh, later on here, we had Bob Holly defeating Isaac Gingham DDS, a.k.a. Fake Diesel, Unabomb, the Christmas Creature, and um, this little-known wrestler named Kane. I don't know if he came anything big, but yeah, Kane was beaten by Hardcore Holly right here. Uh, Mark Marrow defeated Hunter Hearst Helmsley in... Uh, I think an underrated feud, Mark Marrow is someone who is a little bit underappreciated in wrestling because of, well, who he used to be married to and who accompanied him to the ring here being Sable because Sable was the center of attention uh, because, well, she was gorgeous, stunning, uh, absolutely smoking hot. And uh, let's just say... Around this time, I was going through puberty, and the fact that we had Sable, Sunny, and Marlena on the show, yeah, no comment. Going on. <clears throat> yeah, they had a great feud. I thought they had good chemistry in the ring. Uh, Triple H, Mark Marrow, two fantastic workers, very young, young in the game at the time. Mark Marrow didn't, I, I don't think he had that long of a career. You know, of course, he was the former Johnny B. Bad. And Vincent Manzi, you know, like, oh, he looks like little Richard. You bring him to the WWF and you do nothing with him. And he was gone, I think, by late 1998. Uh, Savio Vega defeated Stone Cold Steve Austin with Ted DiBiase. This was the last WWE appearance of Ted DiBiase because, well, this was the strap match. And Ted was like, if Stone Cold leaves, I'm out of the WWF. Of course, he would go on to join the NWO as billionaire Ted. I see what you did there, million dollar man. And the fact that someone named Steve Austin was associated with the million dollar man is one of the most ironic jokes of all time. If you don't get it, then you're probably too young for me. In <laughs> uh, another match that was in the dark here, uh, Yokozuna defeated Vader. Goldust with Marlena, defeated The Undertaker in a casket match. I believe uh, Mankind interfered in this match, setting up their one-on-one -on -one encounter at King of the Ring. Uh, Jake Roberts defeated Justin Hawk Bradshaw with Uncle Zebekiah. You know, JBL and uh, Zeb Coulter in 96. And in the main event, which the lights finally came back on for, uh, Shawn Michaels wrestled the British Bulldog to a no contest. I believe there was some kind of dusty finish here or some kind of uh, controversial count and the Bulldog might have been crowned champion, phantom champion or something, but then they're like, no, let's throw this match out uh, and let's go to King of the Ring where they would have a decisive winner. And in uh, matches that weren't taped for Coliseum Video, Ahmed Johnson defeated Jerry Lawler, and The Ultimate Warrior defeated Owen Hart. Now, on paper, this card doesn't sound that good, but I like it just because of the fact that it had to be taped twice. It's infamous for having a blackout and for a severe thunderstorm taking it out. And me, being a bit of a weather nerd, um, I love tracking storms. I love watching, like, 
when there's a severe thunderstorm warning or a tornado warning in the area. I like to watch the weather network just to see what's going on. Uh, I wasn't smart enough to pursue meteorology as a career because I wanted to be like the weatherman on my local uh, news station, the late, great Bob McIntyre. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why I had such a fascinated such a fascination with it, but I just did. So this next event here is my number four. Also taking place in 1996, In Your House Mind Games in September in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania at the Core States Center, which I believe was the former home of the Philadelphia Flyers, Scott. Oh, I'm just highlighting it here. Yep, it was the home of the Philadelphia Flyers, the 76ers, and the Philadelphia Wings of the National the National Lacrosse League, uh, Scott Rand. And shout out to you guys for Philly. Um, so this was not far from the ECW arena. And, well, ECW kind of not hijacked, but they took part in the show. I mean, Jerry Lawler was having a storyline in ECW at the time. Uh, you know, that infamous part where I think he was aligned with Rob Van Dam and them being sent from the WWF to destroy ECW. It's like, they might as well fill this entire arena. This arena might as well be made of toilet paper because everything in it is shit. <laughs> that was funny. Uh, so we had... Wrestlers from ECW, Tommy Dreamer and the Sandman, were shown at ringside, I think with Paul Lee. Uh, and they were getting involved in Savio Vega's strap match with JBL. Uh, they were then thrown out. And this was the beginning of a working relationship between WWE and ECW. I thought it was really notable here. Uh, and this is when I kind of first heard of ECW. I was reading wrestling magazines at the time, like The Wrestler and Pro Wrestling Illustrated. Uh, and I got to give a shout out to Stu Sasks from PWI, who just retired and had a long and storied career with PWI. One of my favorite wrestling magazines. I actually have this month's uh, PWI in my bathroom. It has uh, Drew McIntyre on the cover, and it's talking about WrestleMania. And Stu has, I think, his last column in there. So, shout out to Stu. Uh, thank you for being a part of my life for the past 25 years of reading wrestling magazines. Big, big time shout out. So, this card here is also one of those that actually are not bad. Not bad on paper. So, we had, in a free-for-all match, Savio Vega defeating Marty Jannetty. Accompanied by Leaf Cassidy. Yes, Marty and Leaf Cassidy, a.k.a. Al Snow, were the new rockers. And what's a good way to bury a tag team by putting new in front of a pre-existing tag team? The new Midnight Express. The new rockers. The new... Bah, Blackjacks. I, I drew a blank. They do a lot of them. And I remember in the 80s, there were two Midnight Expresses at a particular... Starcade, I think it was like 87 or something. Really weird. Uh, why do they resort to doing that? But this also featured uh, Savio Vega defeating Bradshaw in a Caribbean strap match with, of all people, Harvey Whippleman. 
as a special guest referee. Jose Lothario, you know, the manager of Shawn Michaels at the time. Uh, I think he was like a retired Mexican wrestler and boxer uh, of the NWA and WWF. He defeated Jim Cornette in a less than a minute absolute decimation. I don't want to say squash match because none of these two were known as in-ring performers. Uh, Jim Cornette was managing... uh, various people at the time and often verbally abusing Jose Lothario until, well, Jose had enough and beat the crap out of him. Uh, This is also notable for Owen Hart and the British Bulldog beginning their long and tenured reign as the tag team champions, defeating the Smoking Guns. Uh, Owen and the Bulldog, just a low-key, one of my favorite tag teams of all time, even though at the time I was booing them. Uh, if you're if I'm booing you, that means you're doing your job. And of all people, Clarence Mason was uh, managing Owen and the Bulldog. I think this was also because Jim Cornette was tied up after being beat up by Jose. Uh, Clarence Mason would go on to join the Nation of Domination actually not long after this event. Uh, Mark Henry had his in-ring debut, defeating Jerry Lawler via submission, which was uh, a bear hug. I think Mark Henry either injured himself in this match or shortly after, and he would be on the shelf for over a year, where he would join the Nation of Domination in 97. Uh, The Undertaker defeated Goldust in a final curtain match, which I think was just another glorified casket match. Uh, Shawn Michaels defeated Mankind by disqualification in an amazing hardcore-esque match. Uh, This this is one of Shawn Michaels' best in his pre-Christianity run, I call it. Because after he came back in 02, man, that run was just as good, if not better. Uh, An underrated match from a rather pretty eh, year in the WWE. Uh, and other dark matches here that weren't taped for the show. Jake Roberts defeated Triple H. Farouk defeated Mark Marrow. And Psycho Sid, one of my personal favorites at the time, defeated Vader. They would, of course, go on to have a number one contenders match at Buried Alive the next month, leading to Sid winning the WWF title at Survivor Series. Number three, In Your House Final Four in... February of 1997 in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Uh, This match was known for having a Final Four elimination match with Bret Hart, Steve Austin, Vader, and The Undertaker. The four final combatants in the controversial ending of the 1997 Royal Rumble. So they decided to have a a match. Okay, here's the thing. We're going to have this this match here and this was weird because this was a four corner elimination match but you could win via pin submission or being thrown over the top rope with both feet touching the floor this was an interesting concept and these four being you know some of the best workers in the company at the time man this was a 25 minute barn burner the the rest of this event here is a little bit hit and miss. I mean, you had the Godwins defeating the Headbangers. Eh. 
Mark Merrow defeating Leaf Cassidy in I think Mark Merrow's last match until October of that year when he would come back as Marvelous Mark Merrow, his boxing gimmick, which I thought was way better than this. The Nation of Domination, represented by Crush Farouk and Savio Vega, with J.C. Ice, Wolvie D, D'Lo Brown, and Clarence Mason, defeating Bart Gunn, Flash Funk, and Goldust in a six-man six tag. This is also notable for being China's first appearance in the company, where she would jump the barricade and choke out Marlena, leading to, well, China aligning with Triple H and eventually dating Triple H. Speaking of him, uh, Rocky Maivia, The Rock, defeated Hunter Hearst Helmsley in one of their first matches. I wonder if that rivalry ever played out. Oh, wait, it did, because I'm covering it in the 20 Bell Salute. <laughs> yeah, this is one of their first matches, if not their actual first one-on-one -on -one match. This was a Intercontinental title match. The Rock had just defeated uh, Triple H for the title, I believe, on Shotgun Saturday night. And this was their return match. We had Doug Furness and Phil LaFon. Yes, they were in the WWF, uh, defeating Owen Hart and the British Bulldog, who was still managed by Clarence Mason. He was dipping his toes in, uh, in two different waters here, managing the nation and the tag team champions. But Doug Furness and Felifon won by DQ, so the champs retain. And in the aforementioned uh, Four Corners elimination match, we had Bret Hart defeating Steve Austin, Vader, and The Undertaker. And this led to, well, it was supposed to lead to something at WrestleMania 13, but that, I think, is marred in controversy and, and rebooking and last-minute changes. You know, much like WrestleMania 8. Now, you know, th this match was no DQ, and as I said, you can win by pin submission or or over the rope. Hart and Austin had a well-known rivalry. They started brawling with each other while The Undertaker attacked Vader and hit him with a crossbody over the top rope. Uh, Undertaker attacked both Hart and Vader. Vader recovered and hit The Undertaker with the steel chair on the outside. Taker blocked the chair and drove Vader into the chair and then the steel ring steps opening his right eye in an infamous disgusting gash on vader's face uh, austin hit hart and then began working on the undertaker while hart and vader were working on each other and then that's a match hart and vader Whew. i'm disappointed we didn't get more of that you know, all four men began working on the outside as the undertaker crotched austin vader attacked hart with a steel chair undertaker began wrestling brett who I raked the Undertaker and was power slammed by him. Vader and Austin attacked each other by hitting steel chairs, steps, and bells, and even a cameraman. And Vader pressed A and B in no mercy and locked in the sharpshooter on Brett. But Austin hit Vader with a Luthes press to break the hold. Yeah, I, I am reading this verbatim off the wiki because I think it's just worth talking about. Vader hit Undertaker with the Vader bomb, then went for the Vader assault, and missed. Uh, Austin Hart then put Austin in the fireman's carry and threw him over the top rope, eliminating Austin from the match. Uh, Hart and Undertaker brawled with each other while Vader recovered in the corner. Paul Bearer interfered and attacked the Undertaker, who 
and, and, and attacked The Undertaker while Vader was suplexed by Bret Hart. Wow. Uh, despite being eliminated, Austin interfered in the match and attacked Bret. Vader went from the Vader bomb over the top rope, but The Undertaker low-blowed him and threw him over. Ouch. The Undertaker and Bret were the two final participants. Bret tried... I mean, he tried to tombstone Bret until Austin distracted the, uh, the Undertaker while Hart clotheslined The Undertaker over the top rope to win his fourth world title. Now, that's weird. You thought, okay, why is Austin defeating... I mean, why is Austin kind of helping Bret? Well, here's why. The next night on Raw, uh, Bret Hart defended his newly won title against Psycho Sid in a steel cage match. Uh, Sid won thanks to the interference of of Steve Austin, and Sid became a two-time heavyweight champion, and The Undertaker was named the number one contender against Sid. And then Hart challenged Austin to a submission match at WrestleMania. Uh, this was also infamous for uh, Bret Hart's kind of heel turn, kind of his change of character. While the cage was being disassembled, uh, Vince McMahon got in the ring. It's like, you know, Bret, uh, understandably, you uh, you must be uh, frustrated. So he grabs Vince, shoves him down, and I'm just like, I'm, I'm watching this like, oh. And at the time, I didn't know Vince McMahon was the owner of the company. I didn't know he was the owner of the company until 1998, until they made it known on TV. I thought he was just the commentator. It's like, frustrated isn't the GD word for it. This is bullshit. And that's the first time I ever heard shit on not only wrestling, but on TV. I mean, sure, I heard it in movies and whatnot, but I'm like, okay, this is this is cool. Uh, and this was a great, great match. I mean, the rest of the pay-per-view, again, it's in your house is always hit and miss. And uh, num number two, uh, number two and number one were really hard to uh, to go up against, but I I couldn't. Like num number two is in your house, bad blood, uh, October nineteen ninety seven. Uh, unfortunately, this event would uh, begin in tragedy as it was announced that uh, Brian Pillman had passed away in his sleep, and that he wasn't well. He, of course, he wasn't going to be on this match. He was supposed to wrestle, uh, I think, Goldust because there was a storyline where Brian Pillman won the services of Marlena for 30 days at Ground Zero, and this was the, the blow-off. Um, and it's rest in peace, Brian Pillman. Uh, Nate and I, I think, reviewed this back in the day. So if you want to know my full thoughts on it, you can go back into our WrestleRadic Radio Wrestle Radict Radio Archives. Wow, I can't speak. Uh, and go back to our thoughts. I think we did a live watch along of the Hell in the Cell match. Yeah, this was the first Hell in the Cell match. Uh, it had Shawn Michaels and The Undertaker, uh, which would determine the number one contender to the world title at Survivor Series. And this, well, of course, this was infamous because it featured. The debut of Kane. Kane's alive, Undertaker! You're a murderer, Undertaker! Kane's alive! That's... That's gotta be... That's gotta be Kane! 
my goodness. One of the best debuts in the history of wrestling. You had this character throughout the entire year that was shrouded in mystery. I think it was on April or May that Paul Bearer began began alluding to the Undertaker having a younger brother that that he thought died in a fire at the family's funeral home. And what a tangled web we weave because throughout the year he kept alluding to it and, and, and that Kane's going to come back and get revenge on his brother for burning him. It's like Kane was supposed to be this horribly burned, disfigured person. And if you ever read Kane's kayfabe out of the darkness, Journey into Darkness book, which, by the way, is madness. Uh, I didn't listen to it, but <laughs> I mean, read it. But if you listen to the Attitude Era podcast, I think they released their bibliotech, Adam Biblo, uh, review of the book. It is nuts. It's all I can say, but Kane coming out, ripping the cage door open, tube-stoning the Undertaker, costing him the match and a shot at the title in Montreal, and then beginning this feud, this relationship, and then the Brothers of Destruction forming and feuding and f forming and feuding. And these two people who will be associated with each other until until the end of time. Best debut ever. Better than The Shield. Better than Big Show. In terms of a long-term storyline and a gimmick being built in mystery, in darkness. We didn't see Kane until now. Maybe if you're on the house show loop, he might have done a couple of dark matches before this. Uh, Glenn Jacobs, a.k.a. the aforementioned Isaac Yankum and Fake Diesel, finally found something he can sink his teeth into. And while the rest of this pay-per-view was, I'll say it, it was crap, the reason why it's so high, I think it's because of Kane and the storytelling and all the interviews that Paul Barra did leading up to this. And the fact that also, it had been a while since we even heard about Kane. It's maybe been a couple of months. Uh, they kind of cooled off on it until just all of a sudden, at the opportune time, bang, there he was. Uh, the rest of this... They, they had to jumble together a couple of quick matches because of, well, the aforementioned passing of Brian Pillman. We had the Nation of Domination being represented by D'Lo Brown, Kama, the Godfather, Papa Shango, Mustafa, and The Rock, who had nearly newly turned heel, defeating the Legion of Doom in a handicap match. Uh, Max Mini and Nova defeated Mosaic and Tarantula in a 
little person match. Uh, I don't know if the M word is politically correct, so I'm not going to say it. Uh, the Godwins with Uncle Cletus, who you might remember as Tony Anthony and I think T.L. Hopper, defeated the Headbangers to win their second tag team championships. And of course, at this point, uh, the Godwins are coming out kind of as uh, creepy, deliverance-esque, uh, Confederate flag-wearing hobos. And, well, we know that the Confederate flag is now, you know, controversial, or, or I'll say it, racist. Uh, at the time, these were your... your, your southern gimmicks like the, the, the kind of people you don't want to see in the backwoods of mudlick kentucky the kind of people if you were driving off course off of um old route 66 you end up in some of these small towns not a ding 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 you just want to keep going uh, owen hart defeated farouk in the finals for the vacant intercontinental title uh owen hart being the previous champion after steve austin beat him at SummerSlam in that infamous uh, pile driver uh, um, situation, incident. But then Steve Austin had to relinquish the title and they had a tournament and Owen Hart won it back. Uh, the Disciples of Apocalypse defeated Lost Break. Oh. Brand War... Brand, not Brand. Uh... <sighs> I, I, I can't I can't think of a faction warfare. Yeah, you had the DOA, you know, Crush and Savio were both formerly in the Nation of Domination, and then they broke off and formed their own alliance. Uh, Eight Ball and Skull being the Harris twins, Chains being uh, Brian Lee, aka the Underfaker from SummerSlam '94, and we had Los Boricuas who were. Jose Estrada Jr., Miguel Perez Jr., Jesus Castillo Jr., and Savio Vega. Yeah, they had an eight-man tag, and it sucked. Bret Hart and the British Bulldog defeated the Patriot Invader in a flag match. This was as good as these four guys are. This was a dud. But then, which knocks it up a whole grade for me, is the main event with Shawn Michaels defeating The Undertaker. In the first ever Hell in a Cell match. You know, Steel Cage with the top on it. No escape. No one can get in. No one can get out. This kind of thing. Uh, except when people started doing that. You know, Shawn Michaels flies off the top of the cell. Not like Mankind, but... <laughs> just, just as uh, just as violent. And at the time, this was so cool. Like, there's so much blood. There's so much action. And now as I watch it in 2020 eyes, because I've watched it again recently... This also is great storytelling because of Kane. My goodness. And unsurprisingly, my favorite In Your House event. In Your House. Canadian Stampede. I know, I know, my Canadian bias is showing, but hear me out. In 97... I wasn't cheering for the Hart Foundation. But Fretz, you're a Canadian. How can you do this to your own company? Well, I was 13 years old. I was a mark. I was cheering and booing who the TV was cheering and booing, except for Steve Austin, because I was... No, I was coming around on Steve Austin at this point in time. I didn't like him until he started feuding with Bret Hart. Uh, just because 
Well, as I said, I was a mark, and I hate the term mark and smark. Anyways, this isn't about that. This is a hero's homecoming for the Hart Foundation, for the Hart family. Because, well, Bret Hart had been being billed as this anti-American and this Canadian hero, so every time they were in the States, he'd get booed. And every time they'd have an event in Canada, like they had a Raw in Edmonton, they had a Raw in like Toronto, and he would be heralded as a national hero. And to this to this day, in my mind, he is. Yeah, in the latter half of his life, he's become kind of a crotchety old man, but who doesn't? He's like 67 years old. Can you blame him? <laughs> he's had a shitty life. Especially after 2000. Especially after this year. Gosh. So, this is significant for one of many things. Um, I know Nate and I already covered this in our Owen Hart episode recently. This was the last time, like, the entire extended Hart family, like, this is including, like, you know, Natty and TJ, who were teenagers at the time, and I think dating, uh, that any of them were together. I mean, uh, Helen Hart would pass away a few years after this, and then Stu Hart would pass away right after her. Uh, this was two years before Owen Hart tragically died. And, you know, and then they just all started dropping off. And, well, Owen Hart's death, I think, also caused a little bit of strife. Uh, if, if you look at the Owen Hart dark side of the ring, you'll, you'll get it. You'll... Yeah. So, not only does this have the amazing 10-man tag with, you know, the hearts coming home. And this was during the Calgary Stampede, you know, the annual, you know, stamp, uh, well, Stampede. He got uh, Cowboy Games and uh, Bull Rope, uh, what was it, Bull Riding you know, for lack of a better term, cowboy shit uh, in Calgary, uh, which is unfortunate. I think it's canceled this year. God, man, I hate COVID-19. hate it so much. Canceling all my favorite shit. And no, I'm not that much of a cowboy or a redneck, but I grew up surrounded by farmers. So this was, a, this was another thing that I, I really took a liking to. So you had the Hart Foundation, the Canadian heroes, despite the fact two of them weren't Canadian. Who cares? You had Bret Hart, Brian Pillman, the British Bulldog, Jim Knighthart, Owen Hart, going up against Team USA of Ken Shamrock, Goldust, the Legion of Doom, and Steve Austin. Now, Steve Austin and the LOD were two were the hottest baby faces in the company at the time, and they all got booed because they were against their heroes this these five like you know the heart foundation they date back to stampede wrestling days calgary has a history with the heart family dating back to Stu hart they're engulfed in the culture of calgary so this was so huge for them this is huge for canada as well uh, and the rest of the event i mean you had well you had the godwins and the new blackjacks eh Triple H and Mankind in a double count out. This was the start of their feud that would actually go on and off for a couple of years because, of course, Hunter Hearst Helmsley uh, retired McFoley at uh, 
No Way Out 2000. I actually recently covered that. Uh, Great Sasuke in his rare, rare appearances in the WWE defeated Takamichinoku. You know, they were trying to showcase the light heavyweights at the time and bring in the light heavyweight championship. Uh, even though, you know, Brian Christopher, Scott Putsky, uh, come on, you're not fooling anybody. They weren't cruiserweights at the time. They never were. Uh, and The Undertaker defeated Vader to retain the world title in a, a damn good match. I mean, Taker and Vader had some chemistry. Uh, of course, Vader was accompanied by Paul Bearer, and this was just le leading in to their feud. Th this was adding fuel to the fire, for a lack of better terms, for the Kane storyline, because it was there. It was just wafting in the air a little bit. It was being mentioned a little bit here and there, and I think there are some times where Paul Bearer had to uh, exploit The Undertaker uh, and be like, oh, I'm going to do this, and unless you uh, do this, I'm going to keep this secret, and if you do this, uh, I'm going to tell everyone the true Undertaker, but then eventually the truth came out. You're a murderer! And, and then the main event, I mean... To have Owen Hart pin the hottest act in the company at the time, Steve Austin, in the main event is huge. Not only for Owen and the Hart Foundation, but I think it was huge for the company. It was huge for Canada. Everyone popped. I regret not cheering for the Hart Foundation in 97. I wish I could go and take that back. Uh, this actually won uh, 1997's Best Major Show by everybody's favorite Dave Meltzer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but this was damn good. This is my personal favorite. I mean, I would go back and watch this right now if I wanted to. But it's such a nice day that I'm going to go for another walk. I've already been out for a two and a half hour walk. But F it. I'm going to put another podcast in and go for a rip. So, folks, this has been been fretz's fave five thank you very much for listening if you have a suggestion if you have a topic you want me to cover please send me something on twitter at the legendary jf comment below in the comment section here uh, send me a voicemail on anchor.fm uh, i have the next few in the can i have the next few ready to go they might be a little bit spaced out as uh, the busy season is starting up here at the beach our beach is open, although for walkthrough purposes only, no loitering, no, uh, like, dicking around, waiting, gathering. I think they're trying to, you know, put a bit of a stump on that before we uh, open the door up uh, another crack or two. So, yeah, thank you very much for listening to this. Uh, holy crap, this went way longer than I thought it would. So, this is Mr. Fretz saying God bless you, I love you, stay safe, peace.